Welcome back. It's episode 129 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast. And we are not coming to you as we usually would from the faculty lounge because this time we are at an actual university. The three of us for I think the first time in the history of this show in a studio together at Stanford from the mothership at the Hoover Institution. And it's a very different dynamic in person. I, for instance, did not know John was Asian before today. Ah, really? I didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize. know you had that ugly scruff you call a beard on. Uh, and I did no. not know that John wore silky, shiny suits with stripes on them for ordinary broadcasts. And I didn't know Richard couldn't sing. No, I knew knew that for many, many occasions, and I'll prove it right now if you can. No, no, that's all right. That's all right. I should introduce the participants. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter, probably better known by my stage name, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And I am joined, as always, by the Tupac and Biggie of the conservative legal movement. That one's right in your wheelhouse, Richard. No idea. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Fellas, how are you? Are are you going to be able to focus today? Because we've never done a show like this, and you've got a whole lot of handsome across the table from you. Well, I find it very easy. I'll just ignore the presence of John and continue on (laughs) as though we did not exist in each other's private lives. And you ask how I am? Well, it's always nice to be out here at Hoover, and I'm here at this particular point for my annual uh, five-week stay, and I'm trying to catch up on all the old friendships and all the various situations. So I'm doing pro shows like this. I'll probably do something with Bill Whalen. I'm doing a workshop at the law school tomorrow. Is there a meaningful difference? Is California Richard a different Richard? I notice you're wearing board shorts today. (laughs) Is California different? No, I always try to immerse myself into everything. But the big difference is when I'm at Hoover, there's no students and there's no teaching responsibilities. That sounds like John's entire academic career. I know. Where'd you go wrong, Richard? What? And so what happens is I sort of recommune with people whom I haven't seen in some time. And lunch becomes a, a sort of a focal occasion of being at the Hoover Institution. All right. Well, I think we have to start today with the the situation in Iran. This has all happened over our holiday break since the last time that we recorded together. And Richard, I'll start with you. Partially in response to an Iranian-backed attack, largely failed, but an attack nonetheless, on our embassy in Baghdad, the U.S. launches a strike that takes out Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Iranian Quds Force, takes him out in Iraq, which is relevant to the ensuing debate because there is a controversy over whether the Trump administration is overstepping the proper legal authority here. There are a few arguments put forward by the administration in its defense, one of which is that the AUMF, the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, that gave legal sanction to the use of force in Iraq, was sufficient to cover this because it was indeed happening in Iraq. And the critics have said, well, it was hardly the case that this was written to authorize strikes on Iranian targets. Richard, which side has the better argument here? Well, I'm not a particular fan of the administration's effort to use the AUMF. I I think what it was really designed to do is to make sure that people who are associated with and operated in continuity with the um, uh, al-Qaeda terrorists are the kinds of individuals whom you could target. And whatever we wish to say about the Iranians in this case, they've been pitched battles with many people involved in ISIS. So it seems to me that if you're going to start to do it, uh, you're going to look at a very different set of powers 
namely the power that the president has as commander-in-chief of the military forces, and the president has as the chief agent with respect to foreign policy. And uh, if you want to think about this in comparative terms, uh, we took out uh, the leader of the uh, al-Qaeda, we Osama bin Laden and so forth, and we certainly didn't wait for any crisis or imagination. We hunted him down and got him. This is dealing with a much more difficult case because you're talking about probably the seven number two power uh, with respect to the state of Iran. Uh, but this man has been a mass murderer of large numbers of individuals. And I think the basic reaction that we've had has been strongly positive in the following sense. Uh, there has been no international blowback of an enormous sort. The killing and the senseless destruction of the Ukrainian plane seems to have been, quote unquote, a mistake that has trigger happy people on a high state of alert. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be leading to any wider law. The more important thing is, there's no question that the administration in Iran was able to put out a huge demonstration of not so willing subjects. But when it turned out that the protesters start coming out after the Ukrainian incident, what the Iranians did was something which has created the greatest propaganda coup for the United States and Israel in a long time. They put flags on the floor to the room to which all these demonstrators had to go, and all of them tiptoed around it, indicating that we have an enormous amount of support on the part of many people in Iran with respect to American kinds of policies. I don't believe that uh, there's going to be any legal ramifications with respect to this. And I also think that on balance, at least in the short run, the ramifications are possible. You can disagree with the wisdom of this particular thing. Uh, but if you want to say that it's become a debacle, uh, then you're as bad a predictor as Joe Biden is on this issue. John, in the aftermath of these strikes, Democrats in the House passed a resol resolution saying that in the absence of congressional approval, the Trump administration would have to cease hostilities in Iran within 30 days. Doesn't look like that'll go anywhere in the Senate, but they're laying down this marker. I want to get your reaction to that specific move, but it's probably best to start with these occasional refreshers that we have to do on the War Powers Resolution. We're always fighting about where the balance of power is between the legislative branch and the executive branch. So walk us through how the thinking on that has changed over the years and where the equilibrium, to the extent there is one, is now. So the basic constitutional question is, do you think that Congress's declare war power requires that the legislative branch give its approval for the use of force abroad before the president can use it? Or on the contrary, and I would say that's the view of many law professors and legal academics, or do you have the view uh, that the commander-in-chief power and the chief executive power give the president the right to use the existing armed forces abroad without congressional authorization? So I would say until the Vietnam War, by practice, presidents either constitutionally or if you're of the other view, uh, had seized the power to use force abroad. You could talk about Korea. You could talk about Vietnam. There have been 130 uses of force in our history. Only five declared wars. Vietnam created the crack up that you're talking about, Troy, where uh, people, you know, the political system broke apart. The consensus view on whether the president should act quickly in response to threats and emergencies broke apart, too. And in the wake of that, the War Powers Resolution was passed, where Congress, for the first time by statute, said the president can't use force abroad unless he gets the troops out in 60 days, unless we pass some kind of declaration of war or not. Now, the equilibrium you talk about, Troy, is that presidents, for the most part, have ignored the War Powers Resolution. Right. They continue to use force abroad, whether Congress says yes or no. And it's not with regard to party. Even though when they are campaigning, these candidates often attack the administration in power for ignoring the War Powers Resolution. So you could 
list uh, not just Reagan or the two Bushes, but take, for example, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton waged an air war over Kosovo for beyond, longer than 60 days, got no congressional approval. Or Barack, Barack Obama attacked Libya, attacked Syria, never got any congressional authorization. Actually, Republican presidents tend to say, constitutionally, I don't need the support. But then, they, as you mentioned, Troy, there are these AUMFs, which uh, in the Bush administration I helped write, which we got in 2001 and 2002 for the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. That seems to be the equilibrium. I'll note, in an utter act of spinelessness, which shows why the founders would were wise not to give Congress the responsibility, that resolution you mentioned, Troy, where the House took the courageous step of cutting off uh, any authority to use force with regard to Iran is a non-binding joint right. resolution, which is not subjected to the sent to the president for signature and does never becomes a law. It's just a, a sense of the House, a feeling of the legislators. So that it has no responsibility to it, has no effective uh, legal force. It's a great example of why presidents have fortunately, unfortunately, been given this responsibility by politics and the Constitution, because the legislature, Congress won't step up and take responsibility for the hard choices. And that's what the real equilibrium is. Now, as somebody who's worked on the AUMF, as you mentioned, I'm going to bring both of you in on this. It's easier to do when we're all sitting across from each other. Uh, does the ex- Well, you've got this weird zoned out look on your face, Troy. That's perpetual. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's nothing special say, about but today. But every now and then it comes into focus on alertness, but we can't tell why. It's called microdosing. <laughs> um, there is a smallish backlash. It's not like this is widespread within the Republican Party. Uh, but there is a smallish backlash from the likes of Mike Lee, who has criticized the AUMF and said, look, there are plenty of other ways that you could skin this cat, but it can't be that an authorization for the use of military force that we passed 15, 16 years ago under totally different circumstances with totally different enemies in mind can be can give the authority for these kinds of operations. Is that argument that. Pers- that's persuasive to you, Richard? That's what I said at the beginning, right? Yeah. Um, John, does that... No, I wrote it. We wrote it specifically (laughs) for that reason. I mean, wrote it. So if you look at past authorizations and declarations before 9-11, they are limited to regions or they're limited by time. We wrote it specifically to have no time limit or geographic region because there was no way we could predict back on September 17th, 2001, how terrorism was going to change and morph what our opponents were going to do. Same with the Iraq War. The Iraq War, AUMF, has no time limit on it because we had no idea how long it was going to take, what the shape of the conflict would look like. Congress can always refuse—this is the real thing. The check is funding. Not that Congress passes or or repeals AUMF. They don't want any of this fighting to go on. Don't vote for money for the troops to be stationed there. It's really easy to cut off presidential. Is that adequate remedy for you, Richard? I don't think this is 100% right. Uh, First of all, on the AUMF, I agree that there's no formal time limit, but I think there's supposed to be a causal connection of one kind or another with respect to the events that triggered this. And the longer you go, I think the harder it is to sustain that kind of a claim. Uh, So I'm suspicious on that. On the other hand, it seems to me that there is a constitution that's written, and there's something which I sometimes call 
called a prescriptive of the customary constitution. I think John is exactly right. If you start looking at practice post, say, 1950 and maybe even earlier, uh, the very sort of Victorian or, or revolutionary stance, we declare war by one branch and do it by another, seems to be singularly unfitted for the common age. And the leading illustration of this is Harold Coe, who, when he's sitting there as an academic at the Yale Law School, announces how terrible this is. And then when it turns out to be the situation where you have to respond in Libya, he says, well, I don't regard this as a warlike act because we're shooting at them, but they're not shooting at us. Which yeah, is, that was ridiculous. I totally no, agree I think it's the, I think it is totally brilliant. Everyone. I think, <laughs> I, I, brilliant. 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 Because it shows the absurdity of the position. It means that That's you can true. make bad arguments for any position and expose yourself <laughs> to ridicule. So the question then is, where is the new line? And I think the president is on the side of this. I think, in effect, John is wrong to say that the president can initiate whatever he wants. But uh, the original version had the following statement, which is that you did not need a declaration of war to deal with a defensive use of force under circumstances of emergency. And then there's this enormous debate as to what counts as a defensive as opposed to an offensive use of force. And the reason why this becomes so difficult is that it's not a question of we do something or they do something. If you look at what's going on with respect to the Iranian-Iraqi situation, there's these constant low-level interferences. There are kinds of a raising a level of tension. You shoot down a phone here, you go after an embassy there. It's very hard to figure out where it begins and where it ends. So I think the new social consensus is as follows. If you are responding in the theater in which all of the confusion has started to take place, you as the president do not have to get congressional authorization. But so as the president said, oh my God, look, it's really tense that we've now got this situation sitting there in Iraq. What I would like to do is bomb Moscow. Um, I think in effect what happens is the declaration of war power still restricts the president if he wants to go against a different adversary in a different market. And so I don't think it's correct to say under these circumstances that Congress has no particular role. I think that the constitutional compromise that we reached is the one that I've described. And I would assume that if the president tried to do the kinds of things that I predicted, there would not only be a political backlash of enormous consequences, I think there would also be some sort of a constitutional pushback as well. So I think in this particular case, the president's in the comfort zone. All the other cases, I think, fall within the comfort zone. So I would draw this narrowly by way of custom rather than broadly by a way of sort of general institutional analysis for competence, the way in which John has done it. John, in addition to being a legal scholar, you're a pretty keen foreign policy observer. A greedy man, not content to limit himself to one specialty. So parse this for me. There was a Greek chorus of people in the press who, following these strikes, said, oh, my God, the president's starting World War III. He's going to destabilize the entire Middle East. President Trump directly answered those critics in the speech that he gave afterwards, and he argued that these strikes made a war with Iran less likely, not more. Do you agree with that assessment, and why? I'm not sure about war less likely, but he's acting consistent with people who study nuclear bargaining theory, nuclear crisis bargaining theory. So there's this thing called a ladder of escalation, which is what we're watching, right? Each nation kind of ratchets up the pressure on each other, slowly escalating up this escalation ladder. Some people have called this show a ladder of escalation <laughs> for 10 years. More like a hot tub of escalation, I think. We can't pursue that metaphor any further. <laughs> and uh, so there's something in this system that's called escalation dominance, which is when one side basically shows no matter what you do, 
we can outdo you and suffer less harm and inflict more pain right. on you, right? And so essentially what Trump is claiming, if you were to analyze this, like, he has established escalation dominance or he's trying to over Iran. He's basically saying, okay, whatever you do, you've sh- you shot down our drones, you uh, threatened uh, U.S. Uh, naval vessels and cargo ships going through the Strait of Hormuz, you've shelled U.S. bases, you've killed some Americans, uh, and you've done a lot more over time. Now, no matter what you do, we're not going to react passively. I'm going to outdo you every step up the ladder. And every time you do something, there's going to be more pain effect. Now, the theory is that if it works, you actually deter the other side from ever going up. And then the real goal of this, this is a part I'm sure people don't believe. The real goal of it is once you establish dominance, then you can say, okay, now we can sit down and have a negotiation and resolve our differences because the these tit-for-tat uses of force are just ways of sending messages to each other about how far you're willing to go in order to win your dispute. And the sensible thing is just never have a war, don't kill anyone, and just negotiate it out. But you can't show you're credible, that you're willing to you know, really fight, which means you get a better deal, and says we're not bluffing unless you go up some of these steps. And so that's the fancy pants you know, sort of analyst way of saying, of just describing what you did, which is, you know, Trump just showed you have no idea what I'm going to do. I could go, you know, much farther. Who knows? Maybe we're going to new cultural sites next, even though I don't, I agree with Richard, that's a crazy idea. But it's this madman theory is all a way of saying, we're going to race up that ladder faster. You're going to hit you harder. So we're going to deter you. And now let's reach a peaceful solution. Uh, right. I Richard. don't think it's exactly like that. I do not think in particular that there's any firm commitment that whatever you do next, we're going to respond in more dramatic fashion than you did. I think there's a lot of uncertainty about this. And it may well be that if it's a low-level annoyance that Trump will give a low-level response and will do nothing at all. I think it's the notion that he's willing to drop the big particular situation, which will do it. So here's the way in which I would look at it. I've just spent the last two weeks reading most um, in the final 50 pages of the Churchill biography by Andrew Roberts. Roberts. And one thinks of what happened in Rhineland and the reoccupation in 1936. And it turns out that the the British decided on appeasement rather than fights. And it's pretty clear from all the subsequent documentation that Hitler would have folded his cards if the British and French had gone in against them. I think what has really happened is the Americans had used for a very long period of time an appeasement strategy, which was one of the reasons why Salami was sort of went down, made not the slightest effort to conceal his whereabouts, right? He said, I'm just basically politically immune from this. So now he becomes an absolute political sitting duck and you take him out. Well, at this particular point in time, well, what's going to happen in addition to this? Well, there was, as typical, uh, two pieces in the New York Times side by side, which indicate, shall we say, a certain degree of ambiguity. The first of these things start to talk about the disaster scenario. There's going to be wild escalation and so forth. But the other, I think, points to an element which we've not yet talked about, but really matters in this case, is that the economy of Iran is so crippled and so devastated in so many ways that they cannot wage a sustained war. It's one thing to fire a thing, but if you want to sort of get into a six-day war with the United States, you're going to have massive starvation in your population. You're probably not going to be able to get all your planes off the ground because you don't have the fuel, the logistics, and so forth. And so I think what Trump has done is actually slightly more skillful than that, or his advisors. They do this big thing, uh, but at the same time they're doing this, they're also tightening the sanctions that are taking place on the economic fronts, which makes it more difficult to retaliate. Then just to add to this, we saw yesterday, I think it was, that the uh, British 
the German and the French have taken after the Iranians for breaking the nuclear pledge. And they said, now we're thinking about more serious strategy. So this turns out to be, I think, a real triumph for the Trump situation. What they do is they get out of the Iranian treaty and gives them a greater degree of flexibility. They know that the Iranians are still bound with respect to these other people. The United States takes a big step. They say, we're free of that. And then all of a sudden, all these other guys come in and they get sufficiently nervous that now once again, you've got the reformulation of an alliance amongst people who were previously asunder. So I think, in effect, uh, in terms of a foreign policy situation, it's a clear win with respect to Iran. Next question is, who else is going to interfere on their behalf? Well, I think the answer is nobody. I think the Russians regard the Iranians as sufficiently treacherous that they will have marriages of conveniences, but they will not be long-term kinds of marriages. And given the fact that we finally started to wreck the finances, it turns out the ability of the Iranians to pay folks in Syria, to pay uh, folks in Hezbollah who are operating out of Lebanon, to create mischief around the world is going to be heavily compromised. So I think that this is a huge foreign policy um, triumph for the uh, Trump administration. And the idea that you would call this a debacle, I mean, the Joe Biden situation, if he spent 30 years or 40 years worrying about uh, foreign affairs, I think he didn't learn very, very much. The central lesson you have to learn, I think, if you're dealing with foreign affairs, is you are not credible if you announce in advance that the use of force is off the table. And that's the thing which nobody will believe about Trump. All of this will disappear if you get a Bernie Sanders, God forbid, or somebody like that in the White House who go back to the previous day. All right, fellas. Well, if you want to take the measure of where the country is in the year of our Lord 2020, uh, you could do worse than noting that the impeachment of the president of the United States is our B story. But up until really the last 24 hours before we're recording this, it has gone kind of dormant. We'll, we'll get to the latest developments in a moment. But I have to start with this bizarre gambit that Nancy Pelosi pulled over, over the break. So the House votes for impeachment. And then Pelosi says that they're not going to send the articles of impeachment over to the Senate until they get assurances about how the Senate is actually going to conduct the trial. They want more evidence admitted. They want witnesses. We've also had in the interim John Bolton saying that he would testify in the impeachment uh, if he was subpoenaed by the Senate. Now, uh, I will confess that I am not a sufficiently sophisticated observer of congressional ledger domain to understand what the hell Pelosi was doing here. I I'm not sure I see the leverage that I thought she had on Mitch McConnell. So, John, uh, I'll start with you. Two questions here. One, what on earth was Pelosi on about? And two, what guidance, if any, do we have about the legal propriety of a move like this? Was she totally within her rights to try to just fiddle with the process like this? So you'll see people saying, oh, Pelosi, uh, you know, the, has no right to interfere with the Senate's ability to hold a trial, only uh, under the Constitution, only the Senate has what's the sole power to try impeachments. Uh, that doesn't mean people can't influence the Senate to try to get it to do what they want. And that's what Pelosi's trying to do. I agree with you. I think she had no political leverage and the whole thing was a bust. But I could tell you what they thought they were doing. And they might actually walk away and think this was something of a success. Because uh, they realize that they conducted a truncated, abbreviated investigation that didn't include any of the main players as witnesses. John Bolton, as you mentioned, Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, Pence, the, uh, the vice president, Secretary of State, uh, Pompeo, all the people who might have actually discussed Ukraine directly with the president 
or, or, or Giuliani, Rudy John, any of the people directly discussed as the president were never brought forward for uh, uh, the investigation in the House. So uh, the House guys now seeing that a lot of America are not convinced by the uh, list of particulars in the impeachment are hoping something else will come out. There's going to be some witness to say something new, some documents they didn't get, some emails. And so they're hoping to make the Senate trial the opposite of what it has been in the past. In the past, it has been a trial over the, the document that's been sent over in impeachment. Well, they wanted to turn the Senate trial into more investigation by making it an open-ended trial where new witnesses and new evidence could be brought forward that weren't available before. Uh, so they might say, look, maybe we succeeded because now oh, we claim we found more documents or or at least Susan Collins, Senator from Maine and others are trying to starting to say they're going to uh, call for witnesses. Because if the if it remains, I think, contained to what the House voted out as its articles of impeachment and its impeachment report, they're not going to come close to getting enough people in the Senate to vote for conviction. And they, they may, in the end, end up doing Trump a service by allowing him to claim after the trial that he's been cleared. Not only would they claim he's cleared, this is not a single Republican who voted against me. So if you're trying to figure out whether this is partisan, well, guess where you start? I think, in effect, that Ms. Pelosi starts from a very weak position in the following sense. The normal procedure for running impeachments is to have a full declaration of the House, at which point both parties have the right of equal participation in examining and calling witnesses and so forth. What they did is they refused to do this, and they turned it all over to Adams. Adam, oh, my God. Schiff. Schiff. Oh. Schiff yeah, Schiff you were calling uh, the other I, day. I, I just, I mean, I don't want to call him anything. The Adam <laughs> Schiff under these things. And what he does, essentially, is he runs a one-man show. He's allowed to release what he wants, call the witnesses he wants. He can muzzle the Republicans on this situation, doesn't allow them to call witnesses. And so uh, to hear Ms. Pelosi talking about the prospect of an unfair a situation with respect to a Senate trial sounds a little bit uh, kind of odd, given the fact that this was the most one-sided and unfair proceedings that were used to create the information in the record. So I agree that there is a case for allowing information to come in into the Senate if it wants, but I would never allow the House, which had all the opportunities that it turned down on the Democratic side to do this, unless first it seems to me that the Republicans get their option to say, look, we have to do this at this particular level because we had no option whatsoever at any earlier stages in these particular kinds of proceedings to call all witnesses and to do it. And then, you know, who are they going to start the call? Well, the obvious person is going to be Joe Biden and so forth. And then you may want to go back into the Obama administration. Um, I would say, well, you claimed, Mr. Biden, that you had the full backing of the president when you made the following kinds of threats. Well, Mr. Barack Obama, we would like to have you come forward and to testify exactly about what you thought. I don't believe that any of that's going to happen. But I do think that the Democrats have to face the question that if they get to put their list of premium people on there, what about the others? Biden, who's no lawyer, even though he went to law school, said, well, anything that happened to me is not relevant. Everything is about the president, not me. Well, the question is, what was the president's justification in his control of foreign affairs to think that he would like to signal to Zelensky that would you, quote unquote, look into this uh, Burisma affair for me? If it turns out that he's got a lot of 
information that's appropriate. If it turns out that what Biden had done was particularly seedy in one particular way, either far or son, uh, then it turns out that the president starts to look better. What the Republicans did, or what they should do, in my view, on the substance is to say, look, what you did is you set out a prima facie case. You told us all the terrible things he did. You did not talk about the foreign affairs power or any of the justifications that the president had. That does not come in under the prima facie case. We are now mounting a defense. Our defense is going to be critical on those particular situations. We got a lot of stuff that you haven't seen because, remember, we did run the White House. And now we need to fill in the kinds of positions under their thing. So these are the people whom we want. I think, in effect, if faced with that kind of a threat, Pelosi will back down. And what essentially has happened, and I think he's right, is McConnell says, let's see the way the evidence starts to come in, and then we'll worry about the question of whether it happened. The Democrats are still thinking that they're the only player who can move the uh, witness lever. That's clearly going to be incorrect if it should turn out to happen. And I think that they should be wise enough to understand, cut your losses. My own view is I would drop the second article of impeachment, you know, obstruction of Congress or the House of Representatives uh, when you don't get a final judgment uh, against the president or his aides for them to testify is, I think, a complete insult with respect to executive privilege. I think the only thing they could fight on is the first one. And I think when you actually try to figure out how you're going to make that go, uh, their case is going to be filled with a lot of holes. John, so nothing in the end really did come from this strategy from Pelosi. Today, January 15th, the day that we're recording this, the articles were sent over to the Senate. And Nancy Pelosi announced this morning who the floor managers were going to be uh, for the House in the impeachment trial. So there are seven of them. And there are some familiar names in there. Adam Schiff, Jerry Nadler, Hakeem Jeffries, <coughs> excuse me, also some some less familiar ones, Jason Crow, Zoe Lofgren, Val Demings, Sylvia Garcia. I couldn't pick those out of a lineup. But one thing that jumps out there is that there is, of course, some sort of demographic box checking going on. It's hard to imagine some of those names otherwise. But how do you judge this lineup? I mean, Schiff in particular, to Richard's point, and, and to a lesser extent, Nadler, have very much become partisan lightning rods in this process. Does this make sense for the Democrats to continue with them as the face of this process as it moves into the Senate? Well, it shows that the House Democrats think it's going to continue to be a political process and not somehow turn into a more legal trial with established procedures and protections for due process. It doesn't look like they've put forward, say, ace uh, prosecutors and former courtroom lawyers, unless I'm missing something. Uh, from, I mean, Schiff, I think, was an assistant U.S. attorney, but hasn't practiced in a long time. I don't think Jerry Nadler was a prosecutor. That's the kind of person you would want to send over. And it's in comparison to, say, the Clinton impeachment team, where the managers included uh, you know, Bob Barr, who was a U.S. attorney in Georgia, or Lindsey Graham, who was a JAG attorney at the time. So uh, that's one. Second, uh, that also means they probably think that their gambit didn't work, because if their gambit worked and they were going to get more witnesses and evidence, you would want courtroom lawyers. But if you think that what's going to happen is what happened with the Clinton impeachment, which is where the rules are still right now, what will happen is the House managers will come over. They'll give a few hours of speeches. The president's lawyers will get up. They'll give a few hours of speeches. The senators are going to sit there silently as jurors and vote. And you're not going to see much activity. It'll just be like a set is actually basically what goes on in the Senate all the time. <laughs> just a bunch of set speeches and nothing else is going to happen. And then you have an acquittal. And so I think what you're really seeing is, as you said, 
uh, as you suggested, Troy, is uh, the people are being picked probably just to produce video sound bites that are going to be recycled in campaign ads and sort of uh, efforts to uh, damage Trump into the 2020 election. But it's not a team that looks like it's designed to win a trial. Now, I think the Trump team is designed in exactly that fashion. I'm sure it'll be Pat Cipollone. You guys mentioned some guy named Seccolo and so forth. Jay Seculo. I know these people. I know I know Cipollone by reputation and also Seccolo by reputation. These are actually much more seasoned litigators and so forth. And, you know, one of the things you have to worry about is, A, cross-examination, direct testimony. How do you structure this kind of stuff one way or another? Making motions with respect to what kinds of questions you could ask or not ask, what kinds of documents you want to be produced at any given time. Uh, the Democrats are not particularly done. I also think, by the way, uh, that Schiff is thoroughly discredited in everything that he's done. He was completely irregular in the way in which he ran these hearings. And the real scandal of the 2016 election, which was the effort on the part of somebody working through the uh, uh, Steele dossier to upset the Trump chances into the FBI, that's a key issue. And Schiff issued a report in 2018, which essentially says there was nothing untoward about what happened. So he's got a credibility gap of his own. And I think, in fact, that the Republicans will be able in one way or another to take advantage of this. So my own view is this morning when I talked about this, I, I thought that this was going to be more likely to be a kind of a full round Donnybrook witness questions and so forth. I don't think the, defend, the, the Democrats have set over a team which is actually competent to do the kinds of trials that you're talking about. And I also think, by the way, I mean, they have no idea at this particular point exactly what the Republicans are going to say in their speech in chief with respect to the president. My guess will be something as follows. Uh, they will first note that it's an odd place for you um, to try and figure out how to pull secret deals when you're on telephones with 25 people listening in, not mentioning either the past or the future lessons, uh, never talking about the particular missiles in question. And I think, too, if you try to go back, uh, there is probably a wealth of information in which the information is available to the administration, but not to the other side, talking about the endless deliberations about whether or not we supply lethal weapons uh, to Ukrainian government, whose corruption, uh, to point out, is a very serious issue. And I think if, in fact, that this thing starts to turn on any of the information given on the pre-July uh, 26 stuff, it's going to be very difficult for the, defend the Democrats to know what to do. They're going to have to try to figure out which documents to get, what to read, and all the rest of this stuff. I'm not exactly sure the way this is going to come in. But since the Democrats didn't subpoena this information, they didn't examine it, I think they're going to have a hard time trying to make sure uh, that the Republicans don't get any of that kind of stuff in uh, by way of uh, reading into the record uh, official public documents, for example, uh, which carry the day. So I think, in effect, the uh, odds of the Democrats winning, which were always, I think, very low, have gotten even shorter with this particular choice of strategy. The last thing that I'll ask you guys on this topic, there has been this concern for a while since it's become clear that Democrats almost certainly are not going to win this, that this was going to – this has the potential to normalize presidential impeachment. The idea being that they're – because they're still plowing on, knowing that it's not going to result in the removal of a president, this sort of – breaks down that barrier, and in the future, we might have to get used to these kinds of, I guess you could call them pseudo-impeachments, where everybody knows that it's not going to force the president from office, but it's a way to tangle up your political adversary when the opposition controls Congress. 
John, how legitimate do you think that fear is? So you could see if uh, we have a system where the House uses impeachment to try to damage politically a president with no expectation that the Senate might ever uh, convict and remove, then yeah, what is to stop future houses from just turning impeachment into uh, an expression of no confidence or just policy opposition or just partisan fighting? Impeachment is the new censure. Yeah. Why not just start impeachment proceeding every time the House and the presidency are controlled by different parties? Now, the problem with that is uh, twofold. One is, as we can already see, it consumes enormous time and resources on the part of the president. And taking their end of the House, taking their eyes off the ball of solving uh, threats to nation security or fixing uh, the many public policy problems we have. Uh, so that's one. The second thing is that it really warps constitutional law because it uh, takes us away from the system the founders wanted, which was to look to elections and the political process as the main check on an abusive president, and that impeachment becomes this very exceptional tool used for extreme cases of abuse of power, treason, bribery, and things like that. And then the other warping effect it has is that it, it could end up uh, making the Congress powerful in ways over the president that we can't anticipate. For example, uh, we didn't talk about the second article of the impeachment, which is about Congress uh, congressional obstruction. And in that clause of essentially the in that impeachment article, the House is essentially claiming that the president has no right of executive privilege, uh, no right to keep uh, documents or certain testimony from certain aides secret from a House investigation, which the president normally gets during standard oversight hearings. After impeachment, if I'm the House, why don't I just start an impeachment proceeding against any president just so I get access to all their information and really handicap the operations of a White House and an administration? So it's just one example of the kind of things that could start to happen if impeachment just becomes this constant, you know, never-ending saga, just a mechanism used to constantly harass a president. It's almost better than having an independent counsel statute around which to harass your enemies. I have a slightly different view on this. A lot depends on what happens to the fate of Article 2 when you get to the Senate. My view about it is that when you see that and you realize that the appropriate procedures for over 200 years is you never get even to a constitutional situation until you get a court order ordering the testimony in question or what the chief justice should indicate and try to get the rest of the Senate to go along with is that you can demur to this particular article, which means, in effect, it doesn't state a charge even if the facts in question turn out to be true. And the importance of trying to get that kind of a demur is to make sure that you don't get the sort of repetition that happened in this particular case. Uh, this was actually drafted on at the back. They didn't want to go alone on the first one. It is, I think, the most damning kind of evidence about the Democratic mindset that there was not a single Democratic vote who could see the distinction between the first and the second articles. The second is essentially trying to upset the principles of separation of power. The first is, I think, a rather exotic effect to try to figure out abuse of trust that would rise to the level of an impeachable offense. I would hope that in the Senate uh, that there would be Democrat Senates who would, no matter what they voted on the first article, who decided to vote against impeachment on the second in order to stop what uh, John was doing. And certainly, if I were involved in anything in the House, which I never will be at any time, <laughs> I would never, ever, ever want to bring Article 2 without an Article 1. I mean, at all. 
And so if, in fact, you can do that, you may be able to heal the breach. But there is no question that that particular article is a huge insult uh, to the institutional separation of powers argument. And what is so ironic about it is the argument is that, well, the Congress has the power over its investigation, so there's a separation of power argument. They may have the power to run their investigations. They don't have the power to dragoon the president in under the separation of powers principle. So I regard this as a serious miscarriage of justice. All right, guys, I want to move us on to another topic because there's been an interesting development in the area of tech and security, which may sound familiar to our longtime listeners. So we just a few days ago got confirmation from Attorney General Barr of what had been widely suspected, which was that the Saudi air cadet who was here in the U.S. training with our military and went on a shooting spree at the Naval Air Station in Pensacola last month. Uh, was operating as a terrorist. He was inspired by jihadist ideology. He actually made a social media post on September 11th saying something to the effect of the countdown is beginning. And this is a legal issue because Attorney General Barr, in an echo of the fight that we had over the San Bernardino jihadists a few years ago, wants Apple to give the Justice Department a way to work around the encryption on this guy's phone. Now, Apple says that it has cooperated with them, and it's given the Justice Department all kinds of information, access to the shooter's iCloud account, but they're not going to give the DOJ a back door to get into these devices because once something like that exists and it's on the wind, it'll undermine all of their efforts at privacy protection. By the way, worth remembering that in the San Bernardino case, Apple defied a court order to help the Justice Department, and the DOJ ended up contracting with a third party. The Israelis, right? Right. That's what we always contact. When we want something <laughs> got them into the phone. <laughs> so there are a lot of ways that we could go with this. Uh, John, I will start with you on this. I, I can think of a number of different channels by which you could seek to remedy this. I mean, you could have individual interactions between the Justice Department and Apple, as you're having right now. Apple, by the way, used to be a little bit more cooperative on this front before they started going really in on encryption and, and advertising their privacy uh, settings. You could also see this being resolved by the courts, or you can imagine new legislation that draws brighter lines here. Any one of those three strike you as obviously superior to the other two? I would prefer a system that was kept uh, particularized case by case and maybe overseen by a judge. So the last thing you would want, I think, in a case like this is uh, sort of broad legislative rules that kind of either say privacy is sacrosanct or that law enforcement always gets access um, because you're just right. As you mentioned, like each of these cases are unique. You're going to have different levels of need for the information and different levels of privacy rights. Personally, I don't see what the strong privacy right is of a Saudi Arabian soldier on our territory taking a training course. That's not as important as, say, the privacy right of an American on American soil. Uh, and so just in this case itself, it seems that privacy rights are lower than maybe in the San Bernardino case. But maybe the need for the information is higher because you're worried about other Saudi military officials in the United States who are people who are trained to kill people. Uh, being on the loose and coordinating their activities. And so my point is just like each of these cases is different and unique, just like when you want to get a warrant and criminal investigation is different and unique. And that's a better system, I think, to have where the judges will oversee whether to grant a warrant. And then just like we do with lots of other situations, like getting access to email accounts, just getting access to documents, getting right to search your house. So that's, that's my other point is 
um, I don't see why the tech company should get some massive exception from the system that governs all other kinds of records, searches, and so on, where we have a Fourth Amendment, protects privacy, but it gives way when the government interest is strong enough. And we allow judges to basically strike that balance case by case when they uh, issue warrants. And I, I find it arrogant for companies like Apple. Hey, I'm a shareholder. I have an iPhone right in front of me. I don't want Apple to go away. I like their- No free advertisements, people. They got to pay like everybody else. I'm one of those people going to these weird stores where there's nothing for sale and they charge you triple the amount that something could cost for something that doesn't work the first few times it comes out. I don't know how I got addicted to Apple like everybody else, but I don't want them to suffer- but I don't see why they and all the other tech companies should get any any kind of exception from the duties and legal responsibilities that apply to everybody else in society. Richard's champing at the bit to get Yes, um, I actually was involved in the hearings on this case in the Clinton administration, which were run by Senator John Ashcroft and so forth. And the question that we had to ask was not about a particular case, but whether or not when you build into these kinds of hardware a kind of a backdoor through which the government can enter into any and all computers, which is one of the demands that Barr made. And I and Kathleen Sullivan both testified very strongly. Not often seen on the same side of a case. No, Kathleen and I, we, uh, it's, look, on, on mid-level issues, we often see very much eye to eye. And so things she, that aren't important. And what she did is she <laughs> gave a Fourth Amendment presentation which had 50 case citations uh, wonderfully woven together. I sort of said what I thought about the Fifth Amendment taking kinds of issues if data got purloined by some ancient party. And uh, The gist of this particular argument, which, by the way, the Wall Street Journal this morning, I think, agreed with, is that if you put a back door in, uh, you can be very sure that everybody else in the universe is going to be able to make their way through that back door uh, and will not leave tracks. So it's not just going to be the FBI. Uh, that it turns out that what you really need in these cases is you have to worry about the integrity situation because the real trade-off is a backdoor will mean greater leaks, greater security difficulties with everything else. And I would rather, if push came to shove, have a situation where you can't push particularly hard on this particular case in order to make sure that those other cases do not happen. Well, then the second thing you want to ask about oh, when you try to get this kind of evidence, and I don't think Barr made a particularly good job on this thing, is there going to be all sorts of other stuff and information that you have about what's going on? Because we know so much of computing today takes place in the cloud, in which it turns out that there's some kind of common access to what's going on. And if you can get all of that kind of information, uh, what you really want to do is to say, well, is that going to be enough so that the uh, real privacy interests coming with respect to this last thing in the backdoor interest. I'm much less concerned about the individual and much more about the structure. We get that, we can do it. And then finally, of course, there is always the Israeli alternative, which is, suppose it turns out you've got, you know, there's a nuclear bomb threat and so forth. Uh, a, I don't know whether Apple would or could be able to help you with that, but you certainly can kind of do it somewhere else under these circumstances. So I think that the real question in this issue is, do we want to change fundamentally the way in which we secure information in order to deal with the terrorist threat? And I think under those circumstances, uh, that bar is actually wrong on this particular case. It was interesting when I did this thing, it was John Ashcroft, right, you know, and he was sitting there and he was very skeptical about everything that went on. And the person who was 
trying to push hard for the back door was Louis Free. I think he was head of the FBI, some such right. thing, at the time. And it was wonderful to watch the hearings. Uh, this was in the Senate, so first the senators speak, and then they leave, then the House guys speak, and then they leave, then the industry guys speak, and they leave. Uh, then at the end of the day, with nobody in the room, the academics speak, and there's nobody else to leave at the time. That Sounds it like uh, the market has spoken. Well, <laughs> you believe in the, in the market allocating believe, the resources no, I, efficiently. It's not a market, of course. <laughs> but what it does do is it suggests this peculiar kind of hierarchy that takes place. And I actually think there's a serious informational deficit that comes out of this situation is all the bigwigs only listen to each other and they learn nothing. And it turns out if I had to do it, I would want them to hear what people outside the system have to say. But Washington protocol is so high, as you well know, it's the same famous problem you have anywhere. If you're going to have any dinner, uh, the big shot sits at the middle of the table and then you go right, left, right, left um, in order to determine the hierarchy of everybody else. This is why I always want to sit at the end and Richard always shoots right for the chair in the middle. Yes, I was going to say, did you catch the subtext here that he is sitting at the middle of this table, as he tells us, that the big shot sits at the middle. It is a triangle, right? So, I mean, it's not as though we do it. But, no, I think what really it shows is it's exactly opposite, is that one of the reasons why Washington gets such systematically bad information is that it has this caste-like hierarchy system when it comes to hearings, and that this actually influences the information flows. I would also mention, at that particular hearing, the only senator who was around, as I recall was Senator Ashcroft. And so, you know, we have a fine time, and then Kathleen and I go off to dinner. We actually won this one. And, and what it did prove is something else about this is that when you have one person in the Senate who actually cares about something, uh, they can actually form a veto block right. against the other 99. So it was an extremely instructive little innocence of what goes on there. And we each published our, our kind of thing in some sort of banking journal. And for those of you who are curious, if you could go back to 1997 and find it, please send a copy to Mr. Yu so that he could become more fully informed <laughs> on the particular I'm issue. I'm sorry, was the prompt there for those of you who are curious? Curious about banking journals from 1997? Yeah. Who, who, do you, who do you think Richard, our audience I think, is? I think Richard, uh, Actually, his testimony right. is probably talking about this weird device with a screen with a keyboard attached called a blueberry or a blackberry no, and other no, such no. ancient devices. No, we weren't talking about ancient <laughs> devices. We were talking about eternal principles, right? Um, and, and it was interesting. That's the way in which we tried to do this, both Kathleen and I. We have completely different methodological salary styles. Uh, she is the world's master of cases. She could write a 100-page article, my quote, my sentence, my quote, my sentence, my quote, and so forth. I can't quote anybody about anything, so I just sort of write what I think. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, now that, now we've got I mean, the truth. We, this <laughs> is how Richard writes so much in such a short period of well, time. I mean, essentially. We already view. heard today that research is overrated. That That's was right, Richard's quote, quote of the morning. No, no I, I didn't himself. say that. Except no, I didn't say that. I said, I first I figure out what I want to say, and then I find out things that are relevant to it, <laughs> as opposed to looking at everything on the face of the globe and then having to disregard 99% of it because it isn't relevant. That's a different kind of strategy. Yes, it talk. is. But yes, there are different <laughs> kinds of scholars in this world, and Kathleen and I, even when we agree on substantive issues, are kind of polar opposites on that particular scale. So we've got time for one more story today, and I know the one I want to do, fulfilling our mandate to a provide as much DMV content as America can bear. There is a controversy going around Utah, accelerated as everything is by social media, about a driver who's going around with a customized license plate that reads deportum 
that's deport with a letter M. Oh, it's not a person? <laughs> you spent the whole day trying to figure out who M was. <laughs> I was trying to figure out who M was, right? Because it wasn't an Depor- apostrophe. De- deport him. Deport him. That's, the, that's oh. the way to read it. Oh, okay. now, so this is a lawful plate. It's issued by the Utah DMV, for which they are now publicly apologetic. They say it just slipped through. But people are outraged by this, and now the Utah Tax Commission is saying that they are considering whether or not to recall this plate. But there is some controversy over whether that would be a First Amendment violation, because the plate, of course, is a government-issued form of identification for the vehicle. But some people argue that the actual choice of letters on the plate could be considered a form of private expression. Uh, John, I recognize that this is a little outside of your comfort zone because you primarily travel by hovercraft. But where do you come down on this? No, no, I have a Flintstone mobile. I just put my with the feet, feet through the, the bottom. I just start running. <laughs> Berkeley's filled with hills. You know, this came up before, and I think it went to the Supreme Court. Didn't it about there was a Texas case involving what you could say on license plates, mm-hmm. and the question was, is the license... when there have been cases about the design of the plates too, yeah, because yeah, of yeah. the interest groups, yeah, yeah. About, it, about, about the yeah, Confederate is, flag and yes, like, is the license plate like a public forum, and is a state allowed to pick and choose which viewpoints it's allowed to, it has to allow or not allow on the license plate? And if I remember, I think the court said no, that the state is allowed to ban certain kinds of things from license plates. So uh, now the question is, suppose it's, which is like, take your intent, this is the next step. Suppose it's not, the state is banning not things that are vulgar or inoffensive, or are, I'm sorry, offensive, um, but suppose it just bans policy statements that it disagrees with, right? Suppose it's just like, you know, or free the druggies or kill the hippies, right? Like suppose people just start putting on policy or, Be honest. Or, You've pre-registered for Kill the Hippies, or, haven't you? Or, 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 or this one would drive Richard crazy. Take the property. <laughs> what if? Oh, this is a great. How, do, how does someone not have this eminent domain? <laughs> oh, that would people have actually. All I, think, the time. I think that's Trump's license plate in New, York, <laughs> in New York State, or actually Florida State, since he's moved for the taxes now. So I, I think that to me actually showed the danger. I disagreed with the court's original decision. I don't think the state should be allowed to pick and choose amongst different statements it likes or will allow on license plates, because this is the inevitable slippery slope, is that now states are going to try to claim some kind of authority, not just to ban certain kinds of words, but ideas and messages it disagrees with. I don't see how that's unavoidable once you already have a world where the court's allowed to pick and choose certain kinds of words to ban. So uh, I think under the current law, the state's allowed to do it. I think it's wrong under uh, you know, how we understand the First Amendment right now. But I, don't, I think it's inescapable that states are going to start doing this. Well, I mean, there was a piece, I think, by Eugene Volokh, which came down in favor of the John position. And right. I actually come down on this particular issue the opposite way. I am more libertarian than Richard no, on this one well, question for once. And, for Richard's once. A, and Richard's a customized license plate aficionado. You look for the <laughs> license plate that says Roman law in the Chicago... <laughs> Mat- Roman, there's an apostrophe in there. It's wordplay. Well, Roman. I mean, it's not that... But look, I mean, the difficulty that we have is I don't mind people having a message which says deport them. But a license plate is not just a message. Suppose now somebody has to report and write up a ticket violation or send out an APB. And what they have to do is they have to send out deport them, deport them, deport them. I think, in effect, that the fact that this particular thing has to be used by other individuals in the discharge of their official duties is something that cautions you. So John is right. You certainly don't want it to play. Let's pick them. Uh, so keep them here is every bit as bad as deport them for these purposes. But I think the correct rule is not to say anybody could say whatever they want. 
I think the correct rule is that nobody can say whatever they want if it has a discernible political message. So do we get enough license plates? Well, you look in California, and the license plate set is, first there's a number, now I think we're up to eight. Then you get three letters, that's 26 to the third. Then you get three numbers, and we could always use nine if we have to. And you get lots of combinations. I think personalized plates would start to talk about me and so forth. So R-A-E, star, 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 or whatever it turns out to be, <laughs> would be perfectly okay. But I don't find this this guy's a genius at this stuff. <laughs> you you could make a lot of money, Richard, I don't making think, up license plates I, I don't and think, phone numbers. Don't I, forget I, phone numbers. I, well, for but, but I do think, in effect, that the interest on this side is very distinctive because the number that you put on a license plate is one you have to put in there. So suppose it's a driver's license plate and somebody, and somebody wants to put in a curse word about the president of the United States. And so you're going through the passport bureau and you have to read these kinds of numbers. I think, in effect, that we can do this. If this is the first case, case that's come up out of how many millions of license plates. Um, it's not going to be, to me, to be particularly difficult to do it. If it turns out you have something, I don't think that you have to go to John's extremes. I think what you do is you get a little internal review inside the organization, and then you haggle with people to see whether or not you do or do not sort of take out one level and put the others. As I said to you, the great irony in this particular case, I didn't even understand what this license plate was about, <laughs> right? So from far from finding this particularly offensive, I found it thoroughly mysterious, and it was only because of the benevolent intervention of Mr. Troy Senning that I discovered that I was dealing with somebody with a deep political agenda. Um, so I don't think it's the first problem, but uh, my solution, I think, is a little bit more layered than John's. All right, fellas. Well, thank you both. Believe it or not, we are entering our 10th year of doing this podcast. I enjoy it wow. so much Ten years? that I have stuck with it after the court mandate elapsed. <laughs> so, no place I'd rather be inaugurating year 10 than right here with the two of you. And thanks to our producer, Scott Emmerich, who's been with us the whole way and is here in the booth today, as is my wife, who I'm a little concerned about because now that she's got a taste of sitting on the other side of soundproof glass from me, that's going to be a hard instinct to shake. So Fellas, looking at a word... I'm not sure you're still married, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Fellas, a pleasure of, as always, thanks, of course, to this great audience. Remember to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.